Chapter 18 of Emily Bronte by Agnes Mary Frances Robinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Emily's Death and Finis. Already by the 29th of October of this melancholy year of 1848, Emily's cough and cold had made such progress as to alarm her careful elder sister. Before Branwell's death, she had been, to all appearance, the one strong member of a delicate family. By the side of fragile Anne, already, did they but know it, advanced in tubercular consumption, of shattered Branwell, of Charlotte, ever nervous and ailing, this tall, muscular Emily had appeared a tower of strength. Working early and late, seldom tired and never complaining, finding her best relaxation in long rough walks on the moors, she seemed unlikely to give them any poignant anxiety. But the seeds of Thistus lay deep down beneath this fair show of life and strength. The shock of sorrow which she experienced for her brother's death developed them with alarming rapidity. The weariness of absence had always proved too much for Emily's strength. Away from home we have seen how she pined and sickened. Exile made her thin and wan, menaced the very springs of life, and now she must endure an inevitable and unending absence, an exile from which there could be no return. The strain was too tight, the wrench too sharp. Emily could not bear it and live. In such a loss as hers, bereaved of a helpless sufferer, the mourning of those who remain is embittered and quickened a hundred times a day, when the blank minutes come round for which the customary duties are missing, when the unwelcome leisure hangs round the weary soul like a shapeless and encumbering garment. It was Emily who had chiefly devoted herself to Branwell. He being dead, the motive of her life seemed gone. Had she been stronger, had she been more careful of herself at the beginning of her illness, she would doubtless have recovered, and we shall never know the difference in our literature which a little precaution might have made. But Emily was accustomed to consider herself hardy. She was so used to wait upon others that to lie down and be waited on would have appeared to her ignominious and absurd. Both her independence and her unselfishness made her very chary of giving trouble. It is, moreover, extremely probable that she never realized the extent of her own illness. Consumption is seldom a malady that despairs. Attacking the body, it leaves the spirit free, the spirit which cannot realize a danger by which it is not injured. A little later on, when it was Anne's turn to suffer, she is choosing her spring bonnet four days before her death. Which of us does not remember some such pathetic tale of the heart-wringing, vain confidence of those far gone in Thistus, who bear on their faces the marks of death for all eyes but their own to read? To those who look on there is no worse agony than to watch the brave bearing of these others unconscious of the sudden grave at their feet. Charlotte and Anne looked on and trembled. On the 29th of October, Charlotte, still delicate from the bilious fever which had prostrated her on the day of Branwell's death, writes these words, already full of foreboding. I feel much more uneasy about my sister than myself just now. Emily's cold and cough are very obstinate. I fear she has pain in her chest, and I sometimes catch a shortness in her breathing, 
when she has moved at all quickly. She looks very thin and pale. Her reserved nature occasions me great uneasiness of mind. It is useless to question her. You get no answer. It is still more useless to recommend remedies. They are never adopted. It was, in fact, an acute inflammation of the lungs which this unfortunate sufferer was trying to subdue by force of courage. To persons of strong will, it is difficult to realize that their disease is not in their own control. To be ill is with them an act of acquiescence. They have consented to the demands of their feeble body. When necessity demands the sacrifice, it seems to them so easy to deny themselves the rest, the indulgence. They set their will against their weakness and mean to conquer. They will not give up. Emily would not give up. She felt herself doubly necessary to the household in this hour of trial. Charlotte was still very weak and ailing. Anne, her dear little sister, was unusually delicate and frail. Even her father had not quite escaped. That she, Emily, who had always been relied upon for strength and courage and endurance, should show herself unworthy of the trust when she was most sorely needed, that she, so inclined to take all duties on herself, so necessary to the daily management of the house, should throw up her charge in this moment of trial, cast away her arms in the moment of battle, and give her fellow sufferers the extra burden of her weakness, such a thing was impossible to her. So the vain struggle went on. She would resign no one of her duties, it was not till within the last weeks of her life that she would so much as suffer the servant to rise before her in the morning and take the early work. She would not endure to hear of remedies, declaring that she was not ill, that she would soon be well, in the pathetic self-delusion of high-spirited weakness. And Charlotte and Anne, for whose sake she made this sacrifice, suffered terribly thereby. Willingly, Thankfully would they have taken all her duties upon them. They burned to be up and doing. But seeing how weak she was, they dared not cross her. They had to sit still and endure to see her labor for their comfort with faltering and death-cold hands. Day by day, says Charlotte, day by day when I saw with what affront she met suffering, I looked on her with a wonder of anguish and love. I have seen nothing like it, but indeed... I have never seen her parallel in anything. Stronger than a man, simpler than a child, her nature stood alone. The awful point was that while full of ruth for others, on herself she had no pity. The spirit was inexorable to the flesh. From the trembling hand, the unnerved limbs, the fading eyes, the same service was exacted as they had rendered in health. To stand by and witness this and not dare to remonstrate was a pain no words can render. The time went on. Anxious to try what influence some friend, not of their own household, might exert upon this wayward sister, Charlotte thought of inviting Miss Nussie to Haworth. Emily had ever been glad to welcome her, but when the time came it was found that the least disturbance of the day's routine would only make Emily's burden heavier, and that scheme, too, was relinquished. Another month had gone. Emily, paler and thinner, but none the less resolute, fulfilled her duties with customary exactness and insisted on her perfect health with defiant fortitude. On the 23rd of November, Charlotte writes again. 
I told you Emily was ill in my last letter. She has not rallied yet. She is very ill. I believe if you were to see her, your impression would be that there is no hope. A more hollow, wasted, pallid aspect I have not beheld. The deep, tight cough continues. The breathing after the least exertion is a rapid pant, and these symptoms are accompanied by pains in the chest and side. Her pulse, the only time she allowed it to be felt, was found to beat 115 per minute. In this state, she resolutely refuses to see a doctor. She will give no explanation of her feelings. She will scarcely allow her feelings to be alluded to. No poisoning doctor should come near her, Emily declared, with the irritability of her disease. It was an insult to her will, her resolute endeavors. She was not, would not be ill, and could therefore need no cure. Perhaps she felt deep in her heart the conviction that her complaint was mortal, that a delay in the sentence was all that care and skill could give, for she had seen Maria and Elizabeth fade and die, and only lately the physicians had not saved her brother. But Charlotte naturally did not feel the same. Unknown to Emily, she wrote to a great London doctor, drawing up a statement of the case and symptoms as minute and careful as she could give. But either this diagnosis by guesswork was too imperfect, or the physician saw that there was no hope, for his opinion was expressed too obscurely to be of any use. He sent a bottle of medicine, but Emily would not take it. December came, and still the wondering, anxious sisters knew not what to think. By this time Mr. Bronte also had perceived the danger of Emily's state, and he was very anxious. Yet she still denied that she was ill with anything more grave than a passing weakness, and the pain in her side and chest appeared to diminish. Sometimes the little household was tempted to take her at her word, and believed that soon with the spring she would recover, and then, hearing her cough, listening to the gasping breath with which she climbed the short staircase, looking on the extreme emaciation of her form, the wasted hands, the hollow eyes, their hearts would suddenly fail. Life was a daily contradiction of hope and fear. The days drew on toward Christmas. It was already the middle of December, and still Emily was about the house, able to wait upon herself, to sew for the others, to take an active share in the duties of the day. She always fed the dogs herself. On Monday evening, it must have been about the 14th of December, she rose as usual to give the creatures their supper. She got up, walking slowly, holding out in her thin hands an apron full of broken meat and bread. But when she reached the flagged passage, the cold took her, she staggered on the uneven pavement, and fell against the wall. Her sisters, who had been sadly following her, unseen, came forwards much alarmed and begged her to desist. But smiling wanly, she went on and gave Floss and Keeper their last supper from her hands. The next morning she was worse. Before her waking, her watching sisters heard the low unconscious moaning that tells of suffering continued even in sleep, and they feared for what the coming year might hold in store. Of the nearness of the end they did not dream. Charlotte had been out over the moors, searching every glen and hollow for a sprig of heather, however pale and dry, to take to her moor-loving sister. But Emily looked on the flower laid on her pillow with indifferent eyes. She was already estranged and alienate from life. Nevertheless, 
she persisted in rising dressing herself alone and doing everything for herself a fire had been lit in the room and emily sat on the hearth to comb her hair she was thinner than ever now the tall loose-jointed slinky girl her hair in its plenteous dark abundance was all of her that was not marked by the branding finger of death she sat on the hearth combing her long brown hair but soon the comb slipped from her feeble grasp into the cinders she the intrepid active emily watched it burn and smoulder too weak to lift it while the nauseous hateful odour of burnt bone rose into her face at last the servant came in martha she said my comb's down there i was too weak to stoop and pick it up i have seen that old broken comb with a large piece burnt out of it and have thought it i own more pathetic than the bones of the eleven thousand virgins of cologne or the time-black and holy face of luca sad chance confession of human weakness mournful counterpart of that chainless soul which to the end maintained its fortitude and rebellion the flesh is weak since i saw that relic the strenuous verse of emily bronte's last poem has seemed to me far more heroic far more moving remembering in what clinging and prisoning garments that free spirit was confined the flesh was weak but emily would grant it no indulgence she finished her dressing and came very slowly with dizzy head and tottering steps downstairs into the little bare parlour where anne was working and charlotte writing a letter emily took up some work and tried to sew her catching breath her drawn and altered face were ominous of the end but still a little hope flickered in those sisterly hearts she grows daily weaker wrote charlotte on that memorable tuesday morning seeing surely no portent than this this was to be the last of the days and hours of her weakness the morning grew on to noon and emily grew worse she could no longer speak but gasping in a husky whisper she said if you will send for a doctor i will see him now alas it was too late the shortness of breath and rending pain increased even emily could no longer conceal them toward two o'clock her sisters begged her in an agony to let them put her to bed no no she cried tormented with the feverish restlessness that comes before the last most quiet peace she tried to rise leaning with one hand upon the sofa and thus the cord of life snapped she was dead she was twenty-nine years old they buried her a few days after under the church pavement under the slab of stone where their mother lay and maria and elizabeth and branwell she who had so mourned her brother had verily found him again and should sleep well at his side file met autu ke sumai filu meta and though no wind ever rustles over the grave on which no scented heather springs nor any bilberry bears its sprigs of greenest leaves and purple fruit she will not miss them now she who wondered how any could imagine unquiet slumbers for them that sleep in the quiet earth they followed her to her grave her old father charlotte the dying anne and as they left the doors they were joined by another mourner keeper emily's dog he walked in front of all first in the rank of mourners and perhaps no other creature had known the dead woman quite so well when they had laid her to sleep in the dark airless vault under the church 
and when they had crossed the bleak churchyard and had entered the empty house again keeper went straight to the door of the room where his mistress used to sleep and lay down across the threshold there he howled piteously for many days knowing not that no lamentations could wake her any more over the little parlour below a great calm had settled why should we be otherwise than calm says charlotte writing to her friend on the twenty first of december the anguish of seeing her suffer is over the spectacle of the pains of death is gone by the funeral day is past we feel she is at peace no need now to tremble for the hard frost and the keen wind emily does not feel them the death was over indeed and the funeral day was past yet one duty remained to the heart-wrung mourners not less poignant than the sight of the dead changed face not less crushing than the thud of stones and clods on the coffin of one beloved they took the great brown desk in which she used to keep her papers and sorted and put in order all that they found in it how appealing the sight of that hurried casual writing of a hand now stark in death how precious each of those pages whose like should never be made again till the downfall of the earth and the end of time how near how utterly cut off the past they found no novel half finished or begun in the old brown desk which she used to rest on her knees sitting under the thorns but they discovered a poem written at the end of emily's life profound sincere as befits the last words one has time to speak it is the most perfect and expressive of her work the fittest monument to her heroic spirit thus run the last lines she ever traced no coward soul is mine no trembler in the world's storm-troubled sphere i see heaven's glory shine and faith shines equal arming me from fear o god within my breast almighty ever-present deity life that in me has rest as i undying life have power in thee vain are the thousand creeds that move men's hearts unutterably vain worthless as withered weeds or idlest froth amid the boundless main to wake in doubt in one holding so fast by thine infinity so surely anchored on the steadfast rock of immortality with wide embracing love thy spirit animates eternal years pervades and broods above changes sustains dissolves creates and rears though earth and man were gone and suns and universes ceased to be and thou wert left alone every existence would exist in thee there is not room for death no atom that his might could render void thou thou art being breath and what thou art may never be destroyed finis she died in a time of promise so writes charlotte in the first flush of her grief she died in a time of promise having done much indeed having done enough to bring her powers to ripe perfection and the fruit of that perfection is denied us she died between the finishing of labour and the award of praise before the least hint of the immortality that has been awarded her could reach her in her obscure and distant home without one success in all her life with her school never kept 
her verses never read, her novel never praised, her brother dead in ruin. All her ambitions had flagged and died of the blight, but she was still young, ready to live, eager to try again. She died in a time of promise we saw her taken from life in its prime. Truly a prime of sorrow, the dark mid-hour of the storm, dark with the grief gone by and the blackness of the oncoming grief. With Branwell dead, with her dearest sister dying, Emily died. Had she lived, what profit could she have made of her life? For us, indeed, it would have been well. But for her? Fame in solitude is bitter food, and Anne will die in May, and Charlotte six years later, and Emily never could make new friends. Better far for her, that loving, faithful spirit, to die while still her life was dear, while still there was hope in the world, than to linger on a few years longer in loneliness and weakness, to quit in fame and misery a disillusioned life. She died in a time of promise. We saw her taken from life in its prime, but it is God's will, and the place where she has gone is better than that she has left truly better to leave her soul to speak in the world for I, for the wind to be stronger for her breath, and the heather more purple from her heart. Better far to be lost in the all-embracing, all-transmuting process of life than to live in cramped and individual pain. So at least, wrong or right, thought this woman who loved the earth so well. She was not afraid to die, the thought of death filled her with no perplexities, but with assured and happy calm. She held it more glorious than fame, and sweeter than love, to give her soul to God and her body to the earth. And which of us shall carp at the belief which made a very painful life contented? The thing that irks me most is this shattered prison, after all. I'm tired of being enclosed here, I'm wearying to escape into that glorious world and to be always there, not seeing it dimly through tears and yearning for it through the walls of an aching heart, but really with it and in it. You think you are better and more fortunate than I in full health and strength? You are sorry for me. Very soon that will be altered. I shall be sorry for you. I shall be incomparably above and beyond you all. Footnote. Wuthering Heights, and footnote. Ah, yes, incomparably above and beyond. Not only because of the keen vision with which she has revealed the glorious world in which her memory is fresher wind and brighter sunshine, not only for that, but because the remembrance of her living self is a most high and noble concept. Never before were hands so inspired alike for daily drudgery and for golden writing never to fade. Never was any heart more honorable and strong, nor any more pitiful to shameful weakness. Seldom indeed has any man, more seldom still any woman, owned the inestimable gift of genius, and never once made it an excuse for a weakness, a violence, a failing which in other mortals we condemn. No deed of hers requires such apology. Therefore, being dead, she persuades us to honor, and not only her works, but the memory of her life shall rise up and praise her, who lived without praise so well. The End End of Chapter 18 
Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, May 2017. End of Emily Bronte by Agnes Mary Frances Robinson.